titled the message today, Spiritual Freedom. Happy Independence Weekend. And we're looking forward, hopefully, to celebrating a little bit and being grateful for what God's given this land. Uh, before I read, and it's going to be a little longer reading today, so I've chosen a translation that kind of is easier to hear when you're listening. I wanted to thank uh, Rachel and Thomas and all the other volunteers, Samantha, I could name them all, but I'm scared I'll forget a couple, the ladies that served us food every night and the other people that helped in the uh, small group times. We had an amazing freak week. Uh, many of you may not know this, but Gail and I came here from a church in Florida that's probably 2,500, and I was totally shocked the first night at the quality of our freak week. It exceeded my expectations. I felt like um, that quality of program could have been done at a much larger church. So hats off to Penny also. I think she was the forerunner, Rachel Thomas, and all the people that worked with our youth here. It was pretty inspiring. And I got to know a bunch of good kids. And some not so good. No. I was a not so good kid when uh, when I was little, so I fully identify with those guys. If you would stand with me, I, I'm going to read through this passage so you get the binocular, long distance view of where we're going this morning. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, that is John the Baptist. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. This is kind of the impetus for why Jesus was moving geographically, is he didn't really feel like dealing with the Pharisees right now. He had to go through Samaria. I actually like the King James there. It says he must needs go through Samaria. On the way, eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food at McDonald's. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift of God, the gift God has for you, and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. That well was 60 feet deep. She said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? Living water here is kind of the idea of a flowing stream or a bubbling spring rather than stagnant pool. So that's what she's thinking. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed. 
Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It will become a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again. I won't have to come here and get water. Go get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshiped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then, his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what, what do you want with her, or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And she seemed to be proud of it. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Now jump over to verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time to meet together and thanks for the freedom we've enjoyed in our country. Sometimes it feels a little shaky. But I thank you for a greater freedom, and that is the freedom we have in you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus coming to die and pay the penalty for our sin, for meeting us at our deepest woundings, and allowing us to follow you. Teach us today, meet with us here, and for everybody that's online, in Christ's name, amen. We don't know what we don't know. You ever pondered that? One of the most humbling experiences of my academic 
career was I was going to school in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I went over to Wake Forest University one day to the library. And their original library on campus was an eight-story building with nearly a million volumes. And I was just milling around. I was walking up and down aisles, looking at books, looking at titles and authors. And I, I can't tell you, it wasn't long into my journey that I started walking down aisles with books that had titles that I didn't know were subjects. And I started thinking, wow, somebody knows enough about that subject to have written a book, and I didn't even know it was a subject. And I saw somebody do this one time. Imagine this is all the potential knowledge in the universe. I did a little research on this. How much knowledge does the collective of all human beings who ever lived have out of all the potential knowledge in the universe? I thought, well, how would you ever calculate that because we don't know what we don't know? I mean, we are very limited in what we know about our universe, and scientists say there's all kinds of stuff in this expanding universe before what we, beyond what we were even able to observe. So one guy, and I don't know if it's accurate or not, did all kinds of mathematics, and he said, we know about 4% of what could be known in the universe. Now, the interesting thing about all that is there is nothing in this universe that God doesn't already know. And all we discover is things that he already knows. So the best and brightest among us have learned a little bit about God's world. But this library trip was humbling to me. And I began to realize that God had perfect understanding of every topic. And all human authors could do is write about our discovery of things God already knew. And I realized I don't know much about much. Even in my chosen fields, theology and energy, where I worked most of my life, my knowledge of those fields is so small. There is no bottom to the Bible. The best of the best biblical theologians study it and study it and study it, and there's layer upon layer upon layer. There's no bottom to it. So I don't care if you're a Christian 60 years and have read the Bible 100 times. You've just tapped the surface. You can't really ever stop. So... In the light of that, one of the things I discovered is uh, somebody that's been in ministry now for a long time, 40 plus years, serving churches in one capacity or another, and having 50 some years of walking with Christ and reading. I started, I hated to read. Before I became a Christian at 21, when I got saved, I got a a voracious appetite to read because I wanted to learn. And largely I wanted to learn about the Bible and learn about God and learn about how he operates. And so I started reading then. I've written, uh, written. I've read probably thousands of books. I've written two. And 
I still usually have a stack that I'm working my way through. But one of the things I discovered, a weakness in the church is what I'm going to call emotional health. What in the heck is emotional health? Well, if you were like me, I was always told live by faith and don't worry about your feelings. You know, feelings are going to lead you astray. And so I was never really taught much about feelings, and yet the Bible is filled with emotional words like anger, resentment, bitterness, grief, anxiety, depression. Read the Psalms. He faces depression. There's all kinds of emotional words and uh, what I believe emotion are is God's gift to us to relate to other people. Uh, the spiritual side of us that God gave us is our ability to connect with him and have a relationship. But we relate to each other largely through emotion. It's where families fracture. Somebody got mad. Somebody said something. You hurt my feelings. Right? I believe... Emotional pain is the fuel of all addiction. So we're going to get into that in a little bit. But Jesus said to the Jews that believed in him, if you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I bowed my knee to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior when I was 21 years old. Gail and I had already been married two years. I was, a, as I was telling a young man in the, in the back before we came in, up until 21, I was kind of, if you looked up heathen in the dictionary, you'd see my picture. So I bowed the knee to Jesus at 21 by our bed at night. I couldn't sleep. I was in what I now know is conviction. I was being tossed all over. I couldn't sleep. And I finally got out and I bowed the knee and I said, you know, I want you to come into my life. But I, I want to ask you something, and you might have to take off your Baptist thinking hat to answer this. Was I really set free that day? From God's point of view, I was set free. I now became his child. All my sins were forgiven. Jesus was my Savior. The Holy Spirit came to live in me. But I'm going to tell you, Ephesians talks about put off the old man and put on the new. And that's a process. And I had a whole lot of clothes changing to do. And from my perspective, all my patterns of behavior were already re established. How I related to others, how self-centered I was, how I handled problems, what I ran to when I didn't know what to do. Even though I believed Jesus died for all my sin and I was forgiven for the first 30 years of my Christian experience down deep, I still had shame. I had guilt for things I had done. I had things buried that I had hoped would never see the light of day. 
and I was not free. I didn't know what I didn't know, but here's what I know today after 47 years of being a Christ follower and learning some stuff the hard way. Jesus wants to set you free today. And automatically, Christians say, oh, he's preaching a salvation sermon. Well, I hope there's somebody here today that's never received Christ, and I'm talking to you, but you know what? Primarily, I'm talking to everybody else out there who, like me, bowed your knee to Jesus, asked him in your heart. Well, you've got shame and guilt and buried treasures that you also hope never see the light of day. I'm talking to you because you're not free. So every time I preach, and I don't know where this came from, but for years and years, any time I had a message that I felt God laid on my heart, I felt like somebody has a divine appointment. I believe somebody here today or somebody watching online or maybe many of you have a divine appointment today because God is always at work and he's always willing to work when we see a truth and we're willing to open up to him. So Jesus says to the Samaria, in this passage, John writes, Jesus had to go through Samaria. As much as I hate to do this, I feel like I have to give you some background so when we get to the actual meat of the story, you'll be able to identify more fully with it. So we've got a map, and you can read about this in 2 Kings 17. During the reigns of King Saul, David, and Solomon, this is the land of Israel, we would call it, and it's broken up into, for our vernacular, we'd say counties. And the counties were some of the sons of Jacob, a couple of the sons of Joseph got a piece of property. But anyway, the land was broken up into these sections. You can see some of the names, Manasseh in the middle, uh, Naphtali up top. We've got Judah down at the bottom, Simeon. A little one in here that becomes important after a while, the little white one right north of Judah called Benjamin, Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, etc. So that was the land of Israel during the time of Saul, David, Solomon. Solomon died. Solomon's a well-known king, supposed to be the wisest man that ever lived on the earth. And his son a young man by the name of Rehoboam took over, and he was a knothead. He, he was a, a young guy, probably grew up with quite a bit of privilege, living in the palace, and his advisors told him, you need to lighten up on the taxes and stuff, and he said, I'm cracking down on them. They're not paying enough taxes. Sounds like today, doesn't it? So anyway the country ended up basically having a civil war and split. Rehoboam began to rule Judah and Benjamin. That area is known as Judea, and it's the two southern, or the two southern tribes. 
the ten northern tribes were under a guy named Jeroboam, and they kind of were full of more idolatry in the north and the south, even though both had some. So in 722 B.C., here's where your eyes start glazing, so stay with me. I don't know what it was back in those days, but anybody that became a world power felt like they wanted to take over everybody else. So there's multiple times through the Old Testament history where a country would come into power and they would just come in and devastate the land of Israel. So in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in, and what they would do to control the countries they conquered is deport. They would take all the leader people, the wealthiest, the most educated, and they would move them out of their country to some other country or countries and scatter them. And then what they would do is to the countries they set those people to, they would take their people out and move them into into the old country. So the ten northern tribes still had some Jewish people there, but they were populated largely from other heathen countries. And so with those other countries come a lot of other worship and other gods, and God was kind of angry at them. So now what we have is basically two countries. We have a king in the north, a king in the south, a capital city in the south, which was Jerusalem, and a capital capital city in the north, which was Samaria. We had a temple in Jerusalem for the Jews, and we had a temple in Samaria on Mount Gerizim, where the intermingled Jewish people and all the other people thought this is the place of worship, Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And the true Jewish people said, no, Jerusalem is God's city. So this animosity built between them, it's similar to the civil war in our country. We had a northern president. Who was that? Abraham Lincoln. Did you know there was a southern president? Jefferson Davis. There was a northern capital, Washington, D.C. There was a southern capital, Richmond, Virginia. And you know, though, that war has been over for since 1865. Don't throw anything, but we're originally from Pennsylvania. We're Yankees. And I've been called the other Yankee word with the adjective. It starts with a D because we're not going back. When we moved from Pennsylvania to North Carolina for me to go to school previously, I vaguely remember studying the Civil War in school, but never anybody talked about it. And I get on a job in North Carolina working for I.L. Long Construction And all they talked about at break time was the Civil War. Especially when they heard I was a Yank. And they used to tell all kinds of jokes like, you guys really didn't beat us, you just talked faster, you talked us out of it. You know, that's one I remember that they told me. But you know that friction, it divided families. 
I want you to think of, and I don't know what your experience is, but uh, some of you may fly Confederate flags at your house. You know, that's, it's still a real tension. Well, you take that tension from the United States and move it over to Israel and this divided kingdom, and you can multiply it by about 100. It was so bad that Jewish rabbis said, it is worse to eat a piece of bread from a Samaritan than it is to eat swine. They hated each other. So much so that in 128 B.C., a bunch of Jews from Judea, the two southern kingdoms, went up and totally destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And then to get even about 100 years later, during the life of Christ, a bunch of Samaritans came down and scattered the Jerusalem temple with a bunch of dead bodies knowing that that would defile the temple. So there's this animosity. Let me have the next map. So during the time of Jesus, biblical archaeologists have uncovered that there were three main travel routes from down in the Judea area. See the big word Judea in the box, red box, white back, red letters. He was going from down here up to Galilee. And the Bible said he had need to go through Samaria. Samaria is that big block right in the middle. Kind of divided the south from Galilee. The main travel route from Jerusalem to Galilee. I need that pointer. He's got that. Take it from Jerusalem. We're going to cross the Jordan River, which is that line that runs right down the middle into the Dead Sea. And it goes up the right side of the Jordan River so they didn't have to go through Samaria. And then it comes out into Galilee. There was another route that came out of Jerusalem and went on the road to Emmaus. That's a popular road. To the west. From Jericho through Emmaus all the way over to the coastline of the Mediterranean. Followed the coastline up and then came into Galilee. And then the shortest route went directly from Jerusalem straight up through Samaria into Galilee. But almost all Jews that traveled from the north to Jerusalem for a feast or traveled up to visit family or whatever always took the route in over the Jordan River and up the right side because to go through Samaria was like going through the bad part of town. There's all kinds of stories of people being mugged and robbed and killed and beat up if you were Jewish cutting through Samaria because you ain't one of us. That's how great the tension was. So most scholars believe that Jesus had to go through Samaria because he is the Son of God on a mission from the Father and he had a divine appointment to meet a Samaritan woman at the well. 
Now, I want to introduce to you a little bit about what we learned from Jesus about emotionally healthy Christians. Somebody that has all the negativity flushed out of them. For Jesus, he never had it in him. And he has a love for all people, and he knows he's on a mission for God. And God is not willing that any would perish, that all would come to repentance. So it doesn't matter if it's a Samaritan or not. An emotionally healthy Christian, filled with the fruit of the Spirit, care nothing about race, gender, cultural animosities, or religious practices that don't honor God and truth. But their heart beats for all people, all people, and especially people far from God who are hurting, shame-filled, broken. If you're emotionally and spiritually healthy, you don't care where somebody has been or what they have done, or what shame they harbor deep in their soul. Because you're going to be part of the solution. And God's going to use you. How many people were here Sunday night when we did the question and answer time? Good. Only three of you. I'm going to tell a story I told that night. One of the times I felt like the the most like Jesus in my life is that we came from Florida and I worked for a utility down there and led a men's group part-time. And uh, our market was big. It was all over Florida. And this particular night, I was in Fernandina Beach. And I always stayed at a holiday, not a holiday, in a Hampton Inn right down on the marina. If you've ever been there, it's a beautiful city. Tim and Sarah were just there and their family. Um, but we, we're the electric provider in that community, so I was there for work. I'd gone out to eat, and I was in my room. I'd already talked to Gail. We prayed over the telephone that night. I went to bed. I was sound asleep. About 10 o'clock, uh, there's railroad tracks <laughs> right by that hotel, and I was right on the harbor so I could see out the window. And, man, a train went by and shook the building and woke me out of a sound sleep, and I sat up in bed thinking we were having an earthquake and realized it was a train, and I tried to go back to sleep, and I couldn't go back to sleep to save my life, and I kept having this prodding in my spirit, go to the Palace Saloon. Now, the Palace Saloon is the oldest bar in Florida, and I've been a Baptist most of my adult life, and I'm laying in bed thinking, where did that thought come from? Is that you know something I ate for supper? Is that the enemy? What's going on? And I kept trying to go back to sleep, trying to go back to sleep, couldn't get back to sleep to save my life. Just kept having this prodding, go to the palace saloon, go to the palace saloon. I finally gave up, got up, put on shorts, t-shirt, and flip-flops, and walked over to the palace saloon about a half a block away, and it was kind of dark and dingy. I walked in, and there was a guy up there, a one-man band, playing the guitar, singing some music, and I looked around the dimly lit room, and there was hardly anybody there. And I went right inside the door and sat at a table and said to myself, what am I doing here? I need to get back to bed. So I made a 
plan in my own head, as soon as this guy takes a break from playing his music, I'm going back to the hotel and just take this as a mistake. The guy quits playing. I get up to leave, and when I get to the door, three people are coming in, two girls and a guy. They look like they were all together to me. Weirdest greeting I've ever had in my entire life. The first girl in reaches her hand out to me with a big smile on her face and says, Hi, my name is Colleen. I'm from Colorado, and I love my husband, and I love the Lord. And I kind of looked at her, and I said, Well, hi, I'm Scott. I'm from Tampa, and I love my wife, and I love the Lord, too. And she said, this is my friend Becky. I think she was from Nashville or somewhere. And I said, well, who's this guy? And they said, uh, he just jumped in the cab with us. We don't know who he is. So they sit down at my table, and the guy's not playing music yet. And I said, what in the world are you doing here from Colorado? And she goes, man, my husband's a rock star. He's home with our three kids. I'm going through a really hard time. And he told me to take some time off and go see my friend Becky. And that's not 12 o'clock over here. Oh my gosh, it is. Holy cow. Well, that's a holiday weekend. You guys don't have anywhere to go. So, anyway, <clears throat> I'll cut this story short. I said, So, what's the hard time you're going through? She said, It's too deep. I said, Well, I've been in ministry a whole bunch of years. Try me. She ended up starting to tell me her story. The guy started playing. We stepped out under the corner street light. If you guys were down there, there's a cigar guy standing outside an Indian uh, statue. We stood by that under the street light as she poured her guts out to me. She said, I was always a happy-go-lucky Christian. When people are struggling, I tell them, don't worry, God's got this. Cheer up. She said, but two years ago, my oldest brother murdered our mother, murdered my other brother, and burnt down the family home. And she said, the only reason he didn't get the death sentence is because I went to court and pleaded for his life. And when I got home, I Googled it, and I read it in the newspaper. It was all a true story. And she said, for the last two years, I've been angry at God. I've not spoken to God. I pray with my children, but I'm faking it. And I said, wow, that is deep. I said, I don't know what to tell you other than this. I was a pastor for almost 20 years. I messed up and lost my church. I'm working for a utility. I'm laying over here in a hotel wondering if God could ever use me again. He shook me out of a sound sleep, sent me over here, and I believe he sent me here to meet you and tell you he knows exactly where you're at, and he loves you, and he cares about you. And she started crying, and through her tears, she said, for the first time in two years, I have a flicker of hope. And I get up the next morning feeling very much like Jesus with a Samaritan woman at the well, which I need to get to that story quick now. So Jesus meets this woman at the well, 60-foot deep well, and he plays off of the water scheme. And he said, I have another kind of water to give you, and it would be like a fresh mountain stream, clean and cold and refreshing, and it will rise up and bubble up from the deepest place in your being. 
The picture is a total cleaning out of all shame, guilt, fear, anxiety, and every other negative emotion. Counselors tell us it's almost like we have a container inside of us that holds our emotions. And when this container is full of shame or guilt or embarrassment or pain over things that were done to you, anger, bitterness, any negative emotion, when this picture is full of those things, you are not capable of feeling joy and feeling like you want to do good to other people. So what has to happen is the negative emotion has to be removed somehow. Remember the old song, Woman at the Well, Fill my cup, Lord, I lift it up, Lord. Quench this thirsting in my soul. That's what we need. Samaritan woman doesn't fully understand. <clears throat> she says, uh, give me that water so I don't ever have to come to this well again. She definitely wanted the water. It sounded good, but she didn't fully grasp it yet. You know, today's message is not just for someone who has never believed in Jesus, but for people who were like me. That believe, you believed maybe 30, 40 years ago. But you would say with me, my spiritual life could never be described as clean, fresh, bubbling springs inside me. It was more about conforming to the beliefs that the church held, hoping no one ever found out about my secrets and shame. All while telling you how you could do better. Finally, <clears throat> Jesus knows. Why did Jesus say to her, go call your husband? How many have ever heard a sermon on John 4 before, the woman at the well? Anybody? Anybody? I almost guarantee you it was taught by a not healthy, a not emotionally healthy preacher. And that preacher told you the woman at the well was immoral. She slept around. She's had five husbands, and now she's shacked up with some guy. When you read this story through emotionally healthy eyes, you see a whole different story. When you study the background of marriage in the first century, guess what? A woman didn't have a right to divorce a man. And there was a segment of the Jewish population that said, we can divorce our wife for any cause. You know, honey, that tilapia you made last night was a little too crispy. See ya. I'm done with you. I told you I wanted my eggs over medium. They're a little too runny. Time to move on. Study the life of Ruth to see how valuable it was to have a man in your life as a woman in the first century. You needed a husband for provision and protection. I believe when you read the text carefully here in John 4, there is no mention of any sin on her part. 
You know, the woman caught in adultery, Jesus said to her, go and sin no more. The woman at the well, he didn't say anything about sin, and he says, what you need is a fresh stream of life bubbling up from within you. You need to be brought back to life. You've been beaten down so much, you're barely alive. It's possible one or more of her husbands died. The text doesn't tell us. So I like to think, and this is just speculation, maybe her first husband died. He may have been really good to her, but now she's vulnerable. She needs to get married again. Next guy doesn't like her for whatever reason, and he puts her out to pasture. What she has come to see about herself, why she's shocked that Jesus would even speak to her, a Samaritan woman, but why she was drawn to him as well was this is the first man probably who she ever spoke to that didn't want anything from her, who just loved her for her, accepted her. His heart broke for her, and she could feel the acceptance, and she was drawn to him. You see, you got five men who tell you you're not good enough for me and put you out to pasture, and now you find another guy who at least is going to provide for you and protect you, but he says, you know what? You're not even worthy of marrying. Totally beat to the ground. You're not good enough, and you'll never be good enough. So ashamed that all the other women went to the well first thing in the morning while it was cool, but she goes by herself at the heat of the day because she didn't want to listen to him gossip about her at the well. I've been pondering the dealings of Jesus with people And I started thinking, how would have we approached this woman? And I would have had my Bible and done the Romans road and said, would you admit you're a sinner? And if that's how you accepted Christ, yeah, I admit I'm a sinner. You've never gone further than that. And I guarantee you, you're not a bubbling spring of life. So everybody Jesus dealt with, he went for the juggler in a loving way. Not in a cruel way, but he knew if I don't go to their deepest shame and flush that out and redeem that, there's not going to be a bubbling spring of life coming up out of there. There's going to be a, a putrid, spoiled place that's never been touched by the lay today that's still contaminated and will keep them defeated. So to the rich young ruler... <clears throat> Comes to Christ, sir, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, oh, just simply keep the law. You know, that 
really knocks everybody out. But he says, oh, I've done that all my life. So Jesus knew him. I believe that kid grew up poor. And he said, when I got some material wealth, I'm never going to be poor again. So that was what he lived for. That was his, that was his deepest thing. That was his idol. And Jesus said, well, then go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And that guy walked away sorrowful. The apostle Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, and Jesus appeared to him and blinded him and knocked him off his horse, the question he asked is, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because you're persecuting my people. He went right. Imagine how many times Paul the apostle thought about Stephen, the first martyr, when he was there watching him, approving of his death. You think that needed flushed out for him to be the great apostle? You bet it did. He couldn't have carried that burden of shame if Christ didn't go right for it. Peter. <clears throat> Peter, after he denied Christ, I'm sure he's a believer by this point. The night Peter denied Christ, he's sitting by a charcoal fire with a bunch of people. There's only two times in the Bible that Greek word is used, and it was the night of the denial and... In John 21, when Jesus appeared on the, the shore and made him breakfast over a charcoal fire, it was the same fire as the night of the denial. So even by his senses, Jesus has taken Peter back to that night. He said, we got to get this cleaned up, Peter. You're not going to be worth a toot. We're going to visit your deepest shame. So what is your darkest secret? I asked a dozen people over the last couple of weeks preparing for this message. If I ask you what your greatest shame in life was, could you tell me? And I'm not kidding you, everybody within like three minutes said, yep. What is your greatest shame, your greatest cause of guilt, Maybe something you've done that you're afraid sometime might find the light of day, but you're doing everything in your power to bury it. Jesus had to go through Samaria, and today Jesus would say, I have to go through Bristol, Virginia. I have some people I need to set free at Kingsway Baptist Church. When he meets you there, he will remove your greatest shame. As long as we bury that part of ourselves, as long as we guard our secrets, as long as we guard our shame as something that will never see the light of day, we stay trapped in a joyless, powerless, rather empty brand of Christianity that doesn't do much for you or anyone else. You are not free not really alive, and not excited to embrace life. I know because that is the way I lived the first 30 years of my Christian life, even as a pastor. I could play the church game with the best of them. But most of all that religious stuff was just a protective layer, so you never got to me. Ultimately, the enemy is going to use that vulnerability 
If you don't allow Jesus to come in there and meet you at that place and flush it out, the enemy will meet you at that place and he will use it to attempt to destroy you. He did me. 22 years ago, I was drawn away by my own desires, by my own shame and buried guilt and enticed, and I sinned grievously against the Lord, against my wife, against our church. But what Satan used to destroy me. God intervened and took me into that deepest place, showed me myself and himself, and flushed it out and redeemed it to be useful. And this book is no longer in print, but I want to read you this line out of my first book, and I'll be done. Gail and I marvel at how God took both of our botched efforts, our failures in our marriage and the major sin on my part and brought a diamond out of the dung. Both of us were crushed. The sin and devastation was major. Yet what the enemy meant to destroy us, our Father used to heal us. Deep wounds from childhood and both of us were recognized, opened up, and healed. Through his gentle direction, he walked us through a process that overwhelms us both. Thinking through what he has done for us provokes us to worship like nothing else. How the Lord does what he does is beyond us. How he can step in and take two deeply wounded people and bring growth, joy, and a deeper love than ever before is simply a God thing. Let's pray. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to share what I consider an accurate rendering of the John 4 story. Man, Lord, I know know us because I know me. It is so scary to think about visiting some of those dark places. We don't realize the compassion Jesus has that he wants to meet us at those places and he's not ashamed of us or embarrassed by us. He just loves us and he's already paid the ultimate price for us. He wants to free us. He wants to set us free. Use your word today for your glory. Do what only you can do. In Christ's name, amen.